This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Whether a really enthusiastic amateur athlete or the cream of the crop, more women are staying active and playing sports at all levels. But according to decades of research and our next guest, sports culture isn't quite set up for girls and women to thrive and reach their full potential. Is it the burden of hormones that change throughout the stages of life and move the goalposts? Lack of access to gear designed for the female body? Well, in her debut novel, journalist and author Christine Yu makes the argument that it's all that and more. And she's calling for a sports system that's finally designed with women in mind. Christine Yu joins us now with more on how the latest science can help more women better prevent injuries and become elite athletes. Her book's called Up to Speed, The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes. Welcome to the show, Christine. Hi, Sasha. Thank you so much for having me. Christine, I know a few women personally who are former professional athletes and, you know, everything from track and field to, to basketball, right? And I think after reading your book that they could have used this a long time ago. I know you also play sports. So I'm curious, what was the need that you saw up close that prompted you to write this book? I think there were two big things. One was, you know, I'm a sports and health journalist, and I was at this magazine event probably back in like 2013, 2014. And, you know, there were a bunch of panels, and there was a doctor there that was talking about, um, you know, why women lose their periods sometimes when we are, you know, we're very athletic or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I had known or heard about, you know, since I was young, but it was the first time that I heard about the actual long-term consequences of losing your menstrual cycle and how that related to bone health. And especially in a critical period like adolescence. And it was one of those moments where I was like, why, why don't I know this, right? Like, why don't I know more about how my body functions, mm-hmm. about the important role of the menstrual cycle outside of just reproduction? And then combined with just conversations I was having with athletes themselves and sports scientists, you know, saying that, well, actually, we don't really know a lot about female physiology as it relates to athletic performance and health. And again, it was, you know, not so long ago, and it was just, curious as to why it is that we don't know this much about female physiology. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, you've been an athlete, you, you call yourself a lifelong athlete, right? You've also <laughs> suffered injuries, Christine. I mean, talk more about that experience and, and the competitive sports that you played. Yeah. I mean, I have played sports ever since I was young. I wouldn't say that I'm a very great athlete, you know, but it has been a very important part of my life and my identity. Um, and I, I have what I've always considered a quote-unquote injury-prone body. I currently am nursing my third ACL tear, and it's oh, always wow. made me feel like, yeah, it's always made me feel like there, there's something wrong with my body, right? That there's something about my body that ha- that isn't made to play sports, right? Or there's something that's incompatible with it, and it was hard to reconcile something like that feeling with, you know, my love for sports, my love for moving my body. Um, And I think that in part with reporting this book and really seeing that, you know, only 6% of sports science research really focuses on women, it helped me realize that, you know, it wasn't necessarily all my fault or just my body's fault, but maybe there were some other things that or other approaches that I could have taken that may have helped me kind of not, you know, potentially prevent some of these injuries, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, have trained my body in a smarter way. So you make it clear early on in Up to Speed, this isn't simply just a breakdown of the biological and and physiological differences between men and women, right? There's also a lot of overlap that needs to be studied. Talk more about that. 
Yeah, because so much of the research has focused on men, you know, men make up at least two-thirds of the participants in a lot of these studies, our understanding of what's considered, you know, quote-unquote normal physiology tends to be skewed towards men and male bodies, right? So it skews what we think of as normal. Um, And so because of that, um, that, that skewing, we really don't don't know a lot about, like I said, what's going on in women. Mm-hmm. But we're all human beings, right? There is there is a lot of overlap between men and women because we are humans and we share a lot of the same physiological systems. But we don't know what the nature of that overlap is, or you know what is unique or specific to women in and of themselves when it comes to exercise, how the body adapts to training, how we get injured, how we can get better from injury. Um, and so I think that there's a, there is a lot of investigation that needs to happen because we haven't even started asking the questions in a lot of ways. Are we any closer to gaining clarity on that? <laughs> I think we are. We're starting to get there, right? I think part of it is this recognition of this gender data gap in the sports science field. A lot more people are aware of this now. And because of that, we have a lot of women that are, you know, in the medical field now who are in the science research field who are, you know, coming into position like senior level positions who are starting to lead more studies looking at the impact on, you know, things like the menstrual cycle and how that might impact athletic performance and health. Um, Looking at, you know, the broader context too of what it is to be a a girl and a woman in Mm -hmm. sports. So there's a lot more investigation that's starting to happen. um, But, you know, science is a little slow, right? It takes a little bit of time to build up an evidence base, but I think we're start we're starting to to move in the right direction. So you write in the book, you said, quote, this lack of knowledge and awareness is what makes it hard for women, especially active and performance driven women, to find the resources they need, even when they ask for help. Yes. I think that, um, you know, there are a couple stories in the book that I talk about. There's one, you know, track and field athlete, Leah Fallon, um, who, you know, came out of college, one of the best in the world, um, and then went through a whole series of injuries and could never find the right answer. I mean, she, ta- she told me she ended up spending, you know, close to like $15,000 out of her own pocket mm-hmm. to, you know, go to different doctors and specialists to figure out what was going on. Part of it is because, you know, as athletes, um, when you do something like as simple as a blood test, right, a lot of the ranges for the blood test in terms of what's considered normal is based on general population data, right? It's A, not specific to athletes, but then B, even more so, not specific to women. So once, you know, you look at something like iron, which is really important for, you know, athletes in terms of carrying oxygen in the body, um, you know, her iron panels look normal, you know, compared to a normal woman, but it was you know, considered subpar for someone at, as an athlete at her level, right? So that could manifest in things like fatigue that she was feeling or, you know, how run down she was feeling. Uh, but the doctors don't pick up on that, right? They look at it and they say, oh, you're fine. Um, so I think, you know, that's just one simple example, I think, of, you know, some of the, the complexities that women run into. Yeah. Um, and then also when you don't study things like, you know, the impact of, you know, menstrual cycle on performance, again, you're leaving a whole major piece of female physiology out of the question, right? You're not even examining what's going on there. So it's a whole field that needs to be explored. And your book goes, you know, well beyond 
just injuries, uh, Christine. You, you write about clothing and the frustrations there that come with finding the proper gear for women. You you talk, you know, you write a bit about sports bras and that nightmare, <laughs> which I, I've been through. I'm sure you have too. Uh, you also mentioned this tradition known as shrink it and pink it. I want you to explain what that is and what it suggests about the sporting goods industry right now. Well, when, you know, because men have typically right been the main consumer and participant in a lot of sports, that's what the gear was designed for, right, for male bodies, for male athletes. And so when, you know, sports, sporting goods companies realize, oh, wait, <laughs> there's a whole other half of the population here that might be interested in being active, too, they'd often take, you know, the male template, if you if you will, right, mm-hmm. of clothing, of shoes, um, and kind of, sh- you know, what they call shrink it down, so grade it down in size to fit, you know, you know a more typical uh, woman's body. Um, you know, they might alter it a little bit, so, you know, that you tuck in the waist a little bit, ha- you know, add a little cap sleeve instead of a big boxy fit, um, mm-hmm. and change the color, right, make it pink or purple or add floral patterns or something like that, that, you know, they thought might be more palatable to women. Um, And so, you know, they weren't necessarily designing these products with women in mind, uh, with the needs of women in mind. They're, again, just taking this male standard and then just kind of altering it, right? Like making it fit what they thought women might like. Um, Yeah, so I think it it just goes to show that, um, you know, where the priorities are or had been, right, in the the sporting goods industry, um, because they didn't think that women needed this athletic or technical gear, because they didn't think women, right, they didn't think of women as athletes on the same level as men in that same way. You're listening to Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and our guest is sports and health journalist Christine Yu. We're discussing the often understudied physiology of female athletes and how that's potentially limited the performance of many girls and women in sports for decades. That's the focus of Christine's debut book called Up to Speed. So you you touch on what's become uh, a hot button topic these days, and that's biological sex. Um, We have seen sports like running and swimming, uh, grappling over what is fair. The World Athletics Council has uh, banned transgender athletes from some women's sports and we know there are lots of opinions out there on both sides of the spectrum, Christine, but how do you approach that discussion in your book? I think, you know, one of the most important lessons to emerge from my writing and reporting of this book is really how wonderfully diverse human beings are and how much we stand to lose when we force people to fit into narrowly defined boxes. And we lose a lot of the humanity of the individual person and the diversity of makes that makes us human beings, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think one of the consequences of this lack of research is that, you know, rules around sports participation are based on physiological and biological criteria like hormone levels, as we've seen, right, at some of these um, in some of these sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's as if that's the only thing that matters. And while hormones are an important factor, they're really at this point is minimal research conducted with these populations, you know, of transgender athletes. And we don't yet know what else matters in the bigger scheme of things, right? So right now hormones are like the best proxy, if mm-hmm. you will. But again, if you step back, I think, and look at the bigger picture, if we're talking about only 6% of research focuses on women, right, the percentage of research that actually focuses on transgender athletes 
is even it's minuscule, right? And if we think about the the number of transgender athletes that are even competing at this level, like it is an incredibly small population. So again, I think at you know at least from my perspective at this point, we're making a lot of assumptions again based on you know incomplete knowledge, if you will, yeah. like an incomplete evidence base. Um, so I think that obviously these are very important questions that need to be grappled with, um, but we we do need more work in this area, I think. Mm. Um, and at least for me, I think the idea of shutting, <laughs> there's so many benefits of sport and physical activity and everyone should be able to reap those benefits. Um, so the idea of shutting people out based on incomplete evidence is, you know, a little uh, troubling to me. How are current and former athletes responding to your book so far? I've received, I mean, so much incredible response, um, which is, you know, you never know right, when yeah. you put a book out into the world. Um, but I've received so many wonderful notes from people just about how the message resonates. And I think uh, most importantly, how people at all levels of sport have seen their experience reflected in some way on the pages. Um, some of the, you know, challenges that they've experienced or, you know, even everything like you had mentioned, right, with sports bras or something like that, just mm -hmm. these things that we've taken for granted or never really thought to question um, people like having their eyes opened and really recognizing, wait, I didn't necessarily need to have to deal with that, right? Or there could have been other options right. um, had we examined these questions a little bit differently. Um, so it's been it's been really wonderful to to hear people's responses to the book. Anything not in the book that you you wish you were able to include? <laughs> um, there's always stuff, right? <laughs> um, I think for me, there was a big piece around mental health as well as like sports psychology that I wish I could have dove into a little bit more. Um, in part of the reason I didn't, I, you know, in part was because the research isn't quite there yet. Um, but then when we look at a larger topic like, you know, mental well-being and mental health, I feel like, you know, I couldn't necessarily do it justice, right, in just a chapter. I feel like that, that's a larger topic to be tackled. Well, leave us with this. What's your vision for the, the future of women's sports in America and across the globe? It's, I mean, it's incredibly exciting to see the growth of women's sports. I mean, even just with the World Cup, you know, going on right now, yes. right, this summer, um, the level of athleticism that these women are playing at, it's phenomenal. And just to be able to see not just the growth in the game, but just the growth in um, the level of play, right, across the globe. Um, you know, I know a lot of folks are, and myself too, are, you know, it's, we're upset that the, the U.S. women's national team has, has bowed out yeah. of the tournament early. Mm -hmm. But it's been, I mean, if you, I think, again, if you step back and look at it, just being able to see the number of countries that qualified for the tur tournament the first time, the number of countries that made it out of the group stage and into the knockout rounds and have progressed just so far, it's really exciting to see. And I hope that, you know, on the back end of that, that, you know, the scientists and the research community and the, you know, sports organizations, frankly, put more resources into really building that infrastructure that will help support these athletes perform and stay healthy for the longer term. Christine Yu's debut book, Up to Speed, The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes, is available now wherever books are sold. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Sasha. 
This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We have been talking about what researchers and innovators are doing today to make sports better for women. Everything from what the best nutrition and exercise regimens are to the kind of equipment and uniforms needed for peak performance. We've been digging into how the lack of research on this front has potentially limited the performance of many girls and women in sports for decades. But what about financial resources into women's professional sports? How can investment into facilities and travel or pay help boost performance and the health of women athletes in the long term? So here to weigh in and share some insight into what those resources look like locally is Annie Costabile. She covers the Chicago Sky and Red Stars for the Sun-Times. Hey, Annie. Good to hey, see you. Sasha Ann. Thanks for having me. So you've said the Red Stars, uh, which is uh, Chicago's women's soccer team, is light years behind men's soccer in terms of resources. How so? I think it's also important just to clarify, too, it's not even just the Red Star specifically. It's the league in, in general. Mm. It's just behind in terms of the time that it's even existed. But then when you look within the league at the Red Stars and then uh, newer organizations like Angels, uh, Angel City SC in L.A., um, in San Diego, um, in Kansas City, these teams are making significant improvements to their facilities mm-hmm. they're building facilities from the ground up which is what we saw happen here in chicago with the chicago fire and their new state-of-the-art fifty-three thousand square foot facility that is i think broke ground earlier this year and the way that that impacts a player's career having all of those resources that exist in that facility right yeah it's just um this it, has this has long term impacts. Long term on their impacts. health and their ability to just stay in the game. Exactly, and so when you look at um, the length of of professional men's careers, professional athletes, and in, in professional men's sports compared to women, you're seeing those numbers. And so um, when you look at the Chicago again, talking about Chicago Red Star specifically, um, the Fire are going to have multiple practice faci- or practice fields in this facility. Um, state-of-the-art equipment and sure some people might might say well okay you've existed without this stuff and everyone's been fine Mm -hmm. but these implementations actually weigh in on a player's uh, longevity so yeah I would say the biggest difference in Chicago is the fact that you know the fire have this brand new facility being built in the Red Stars are no man's land. So what are you hearing then, Annie, from players about what they would like to to see shift? And, and then how is team management responding? Well, I think the biggest, the most notable difference is how it affects free agency. So for a long time, which is just like maybe a whole nother conversation, but free agency in women's sports has been interesting. There's been so much control that teams, that franchises have had over keeping players w- with the team which takes away a player's ability to be like, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to go to this team that can. Like the team had that control. Mm -hmm. And now that's shifted in both leagues for a multitude of reasons. And we're seeing, we saw with the Red Stars, multiple players left for other organizations. And there was, you know, a whole lot going on behind the scenes. You had me on, you know, multiple times over the last year and a half to talk about issues going on with turmoil the there exactly so that played a role as well but when you're seeing where these these players are going again to angel city fc um kansas city wave like or sorry san diego wave like there's that's not 
that's not by accident. They're going to places that are going to ensure that they are going to be taken care of yeah. as professional athletes. Investing in them. Mm -hmm. Well, let's look at another local uh, women's team, the Chicago Sky, right? Because on the other hand, this team does have more updated facilities, mm -hmm. right? Well, it's not exactly that they have updated facilities, but they've they've brought in, um, they've invested in in different training. Gosh, what's the word? Facilities? Uh, not facilities. They practice out of, sorry, I'm, I'm stumbling over my words today. I got in okay, on you, a morning flight. You just I'm, got in off, off, I'm a, a mess. off a flight. But um, no, they practice out of Saks Recreation Center in Deerfield. So it's a public, it's a public gym. Yeah. But you and I could go work out there if I we see. were members. But they've invested in things like a state-of-the-art uh, treadmill that that helps with recovery, um, an Ultra-G treadmill, it's called. So different um, training tools mm. that can kind of travel with them, um, you know, that, that they can use at the facility, but they don't necessarily have their own, they don't have their own facility. I, I'm just trying to wrap my mind about, around why yeah. the discrepancy then between the two teams or what's at their disposal and if that reflects towards uh, differing attitudes between soccer and, and basketball. So the differing between between the NWSL and the WNBA or, or between the Bulls and the Sky? No, between the WSL and the and the WNBA. Yeah. The two women's teams. So also it, it's time, right? Like the WNBA um, was born in 1996 and the NWSL is is 10 years in, 11 years in. So it's it's that time. And then it's also the investment that's been made with various franchises in the WNBA as being part of, of the NBA franchise in their town, right? So um, there are a number of WNBA franchises that are owned under the same ownership group as their NBA counterpart. And mm -hmm. that's played a role also in these different facilities and um, amenities that have been made available to players over the years. If mm -hmm. you look at the Phoenix Mercury, um, BG's there, Diane Tarasi's there, like they've, they've um, always had a, a slew of, of amenities and, and, um, just a facility, yeah, resources yeah. available to their players by being under that joint ownership group. And that's not the case here in Chicago. I mean, and the list of just inequities, I mean, just goes on. We could talk about travel all day too, right? Because I know one of the issues there with the WNBA is athletes have to fly on commercial planes to get to and from games as opposed to, you know, how this compares. We know NBA players are not on those commercial flights. No, no. <laughs> They're on private, private flights. I mean... What does that say, this this hassle, this difference? I mean, it just points to how serious we take women. I mean, this is a reflection of, of society, right? Like you're you're saying that that you're not you're not treating it the same. Yeah. Just flat out. At and all. a lot of comparison gets made to where the NBA was at when it was twenty six, twenty seven years in, which is fair, right? The NBA was on tape delay. Like Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, you were watching them delayed. You weren't watching them <laughs> oh live. Oh my goodness, that's right. So it, it there is a comparison to be made, right? But it's 2023 and you're risking players' health by putting them on commercial flights. I mean, listen, I travel to every road game with the sky. Every game I'm at. I get on these commercial flights like and I'm exhausted. I show up to shoot around straight from a flight 
or, um, you know, I'm getting into hotels late, whatever the circumstances are that come with traveling. And my body is depleted. So now you throw on top of it that they're coming from games. They're coming from practice, going to games. I mean, you think about the luxuries of private travel. It's not just that it's private travel. You get to dictate what time you leave an arena. So you're talking about a player, let's say Kalia Copper, for example. Um, She's... You know, seven years, eight years into her career, she gets treatment after games, before games. Yeah. Okay, so if you're having to go straight to the airport to catch a flight, because you'll get, you know, you'll miss your flight. Yeah. You can't get that treatment post game. At you can't dictate the timing of treatment. Yeah. You know, it's just there's so hmm. many ways that it impacts it. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned, uh, you know. As we're talking about media coverage, I mean, you are one of the few who actually travel, if not the only, who travel to to these games uh, with these uh, women's teams. And and we know coverage of women's sports. We could talk a whole day about that, Amy, because sometimes what's supposed to be (laughs) celebratory, then it it gets there's some sexism happening there. But in the interest of time, I got to talk to you about the World Cup because that's going on right now. I mean, the difference in prize money at the right. World Cup is just, I mean, the pot for men, it was $449 million. The women's prize money is $110 million. What a wild difference. Right. Right. It's an insane dr- difference, a drastic difference. And obviously, we know the U.S. women's national team fought extremely hard for equal play, which is implemented after this World Cup. And the men's team and women's team will pool their money together and split that 45%. But that's just the U.S. women's national team. That's just the U.S., um, both men's and women's national team. So when you're talking about other um, national teams, that's that's not being applied to everyone. So that fight, though, has been acknowledged by other women's national teams as a step forward for all teams because okay. everyone's paying attention to that, right? Like they're they're fighting, although it's only impacting them right now, that could potentially impact other teams in the future, right? Yeah. But when you're looking at that drastic difference, it's it's again like it's a blatant example of men men are are better, quote unquote, than than women. And that's not the case. Like, we know that's not the case, but you're saying it's the case yeah. with these numbers, with this investment. So another one of those cases where it's like we've we've come a ways, but there's there's still we a ways so to go. We have so far to go. And I do have to just say Kareem Copeland from The Washington Post is the other beat writer who travels with the with a WNBA team as a as a you know, national beat writer or a, a team beat writer. So it's him and I. I didn't want to get away with claiming to be the only. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you, Annie, for, for dropping in after that flight, of course. Annie Costabile is with the uh, Sun-Times covering the Chicago sky. Thank you so much. Thank you.